So we are studying through First Peter. Um, man, just really feeling like the more that I am studying, the more I'm contemplating on the scripture, the more I'm feeling like, wow, another just really timely message from the Lord for his church for today. And so I entitled the the series, uh, Standing Firm, and it's taken from Peter's words at the end of his letter, of this letter, when having said all that he's going to say that we've not yet gotten to, Peter finishes in chapter 5, verse 12, and he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is the this? And I think that's really what we're going to be endeavoring to unearth But he says, this is the true grace of God. And then he makes the statement, stand firm in it. And so it's from this last kind of admonishment within Peter's letters that we've taken the title for this series. And we're entitling it, Standing Firm, our study through 1 Peter. And man, I don't know if you guys know this, but not coincidentally, I would say, do you all know what today signifies? In How many good Protestants are out there? Does anyone know what the literal day today signifies? Today is the 500th anniversary of a certain day. There, has anyone ever heard of the Diet of Worms? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Diet of Worms. Keep your hand up if you know what the Diet of Worms is. That's okay. Good job, Shannon. Let, listen, there, let, that's not an indictment. That is just to say, it's to say this. You know, growing up a non-denominational Protestant, I didn't even know that I was Protestant until later because non-denominationalism doesn't emphasize much really deep theology and definitely not a ton of orthodoxy. Although we practice it, it's not spoken of and taught. So I didn't even know that I was a Protestant until later. And I definitely didn't know a lot of this historical stuff until I started studying it on my own. So listen, that wasn't an indictment. I just was curious. So the Diet of Worms, so it wasn't someone sitting eating, eating worms. So hopefully you've gathered that. Thus far, it wasn't the 500 anniversary of a man doing that. It was the uh, the diet. A diet was essentially it was a, a political council that was called together, um, and this was in literally to the day, April 18th, 1521. We find ourselves. Martin Luther was called before hundreds of counselors, lords, um, before the emperor, and before other church officials to stand, and he was demanded essentially to recant what they were saying were heresies against the Roman Catholic Church and, of course, against the Pope and against the emperor. And so they called him to this diet, and initially it wasn't even intended that he was going to come, but the political leaders who hated him made it as such that they, they slipped him in at the last minute and he made it onto the ballot. And so he was called before to stand, and he makes this really powerful statement. So I want to read you this powerful statement that he makes. Essentially, of course, Martin Luther makes his stand and takes his stand and says this, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, he says, I can do no other. God help me, amen. This was the end of this long speech that he makes. And of course, we know the significance of Martin Luther to us as Protestants, right? 
you're here. We understand the significance of Martin Luther to the Reformation, of course, to the, the truths that we hold deeply to this day. And wow, what an amazing, just again, not a coincidence that I stand here before you on this 500th anniversary of him making this amazing speech on our behalf, in the sense of whom we are beneficiaries of. So it appears as though our efforts through First Peter um, take on an even more significant importance in this day. So Peter's exhortation in chapter 5, verse 12, of saying these are the, this is the grace of God, stand firm in it. He isn't simply saying that these are just truths that will be encouraging to you or truths that you will find to be helpful for you in difficult circumstances. While they are both of those things, he's not just saying that, to consider these things because they probably will do you well. He's saying this, that this is the grace of God for your life. This is literally the essence of your life as a believer. It's the foundation upon which your life is built, the truth foundation upon which your life is built. The grace of God, it's the divine ability to remain and to continue in the Christian life by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The grace in your life is a life that is rooted and fixed in the person of Jesus Christ in who he is and, and what he has done so significantly for us. It's fixed there. It's anchored there. It's a life that abounds by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in strength and in peace, in hope, in perseverance, in steadfastness. And so you can see that the, the importance of what he's saying goes beyond just consider these things. He's saying, no, literally, what I have said to you is the essence of the Christian life. Take a hold of it, brothers and sisters in Christ. Stand firm in it. Fix your life firmly within this truth. And so my desire for us is to strengthen us and to encourage us as Christians in this 21st century to also find our anchoring in the grace of God, to find our firm foundation in what Peter is going to teach to us. It's like I was thinking, you know, just in light of what I was saying about Martin Luther in, the, in 1521, but also what I said last week about the early Christians, the first century, second, and third century, each one has been commanded and commissioned and has found their firm footing in the grace of God. And now here we are today and how we must continue and how we must remain, right? Important for us. In John chapter 17, in Jesus's, what's known as his high priestly prayer prior to his crucifixion, he makes this point just concerning the otherliness of, of God's people when he says this, that I have given, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, he says, because they are not of the world. And who is he speaking of? Who's he speaking of? Us. Just making sure you guys were awake. He's speaking of us. He's speaking of his, his disciples, his followers. I, the world has hated them because they're not of the world. And he says, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so as I began this series last week, I, I spoke from Peter's words in verse one and verse two, where straight out of the gate, 
Peter's emphasis is to show that the first century Gentile believers, which they were, are like those of the Old Testament people of Israel, God's chosen people. And they find themselves in that day, just as God's people in the Old Covenant found themselves as foreigners, strangers, aliens, and exiles. So the people within the first and second century, the first century church that Peter was writing to finds themselves as foreigners and exiles. And so do we today find ourselves as exiles. Sent out into the world. Sent out into the world. The foreignness, I said this last week, is a result of the people of God being who they are. Just as he says, they are not of the world, Jesus says in that John text. The people of God are not of the world. We are not of the world, therefore we will not look like the world. We will not act like much of the world. We will not idealize much of what the world upholds and promotes. We're different by our very nature. This is a foreignness that's resulted from the transference of one nation or people or tribe or kingdom is the language that Paul will use, a transference from one kingdom to the other, from the kingdom of darkness, out of the darkness we came, and into the kingdom of God we have been placed. But beyond just the stability that this brings, the sure footing of a Christian life is vital to the success of the church, whose mission it is to live with its face in the wind or against the wind of hell. Do you guys believe that? It's the mission of this church. It's your mission in life as a believer in Christ Jesus to live with your face against the winds of hell, if you will. All that comes from the spirit of this age. And so this firm footing, this standing firm in the grace of God is so much more essential than just Again, finding an encouragement in the day-to-day while it will do that. But it's what enables us, church, to live with this kind of front-footed, arm-in-arm, you know, just leaning in, if you will, to what comes at us. And I, again, as I said a moment ago, I really believe that this is a message of preparation, that the Lord wants his church to be prepared. The words that were true to first-century believers are still true to us today. Do you believe that? then it behooves us and requires us to follow those words and to align our hearts and our lives accordingly. I spoke to last week when I shared the historical context of the first and second century church who was living in the Roman Empire where Caesar was declared to be Lord. It was actually the second and third century. It, was, it kind of gradually built until it came to a total head. And as I said last week, where they actually required once a year all citizens within the Roman Empire to come and pay an offering unto Caesar. And in that payment of offering, there was a verbal declaration that was made that you had to say that Caesar was Lord. That's what they required. That's what they required. It's absolutely astonishing, isn't it? Not unlike today, I was thinking about this, where all we need to do is simply exchange the name Caesar and fill in the blank with something else. Equity is Lord. Inclusivity is Lord, right? Enlightenment is Lord. Progressivism, while someone might not say that, the way that they live, the things that they say, what they pursue would go in line with that statement. And so like Luther, 
we must find that as the church to fight and to stand against the false lords and, and the false idols that the world upholds and to say as he did that day 500 years ago that it is these scriptures which are my basis, that my conscience is captive to the word of God, as Luther would say. And here I stand, I can do no other. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter if you're not there yet. I'm going to read this morning 1 Peter verses 3 through 12. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll also put it up on the monitor. Just in case you don't have the same translation, you can follow it along with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3. Can I just pray really quick and ask the Lord, Lord, this is the, your word. Father, we come and approach your word with humility and, Lord, with gratefulness, just again in reflection of the significance of this day in the Christian faith, Lord, how, how men and women went even unto their death to preserve the truth that we hold today. Father, we understand that it was your divine grace and strength which allowed them to do so. And Lord, we're asking that you would root us firmly within the, the confidence of your scriptures, with an enlightenment and a revelation of truth, Lord, that we would be like the so many men and women who stood firmly, Lord, who, who resisted, and not only resisted, Lord, but actually persevered. They took ground. They moved forward. Lord, we understand that's what you're calling your church to. And so it's with just absolute thankfulness that we receive now your word, and we ask that your spirit would enlighten our hearts to truth or lead us into understanding for the glory of your name. Amen. Shan, can I have my water? It's right there. I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Leave the camera for a moment. I don't care. <laughs> that was loud. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Can I just point out to you, look at the uh, punctuation at the end of the first statement, okay? So if you're asleep, I might wake you up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's emphatic. There's no mistaking Peter's intent. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. What a beautiful text that I know you are probably very familiar with, that you've encouraged yourself in at times over the years, and rightfully so, because like Paul, it's just filled with this abundance of rich and beautiful theology that speaks so directly to the heart of the believer and the reality of the Christian life. And so what I want to do today is actually just focus on verses 1 through 5. And I read, sorry, 3 through 5, and I read 3 through 12 because in the Greek, it's one whole sentence. Can you believe these Greeks? What are they doing? But it's like Paul does the same thing at times, and we've spoken about it before. But there's, there's significance in it because within this, then what we know is there's a building, there's an intent, and it's going to culminate. And so Peter is saying all these things because he's making a point, and it is important for us to grasp what that point is. And so I want to begin with just, again, the first verses of 3 through 5. And verses 3 through 5 are commonly recognized as what is considered a doxology. Are you familiar with doxology? I think we are. Again, if you came from maybe non-denominationalism, you might not be. I don't think I learned about doxologies until I was a grown individual either. But a doxology, just very commonly known, is a hymn of praise. It's It's a particular form of giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we often have seen these throughout Scripture. You're familiar with many of them, where the writers, whether it's Paul or Peter or Jude, has a beautiful doxology that yesterday as men, we just, we, we prayed it out and, and ended our time of prayer together with Jude's doxology. So in any of those moments, typically what you find that in the doxology, it usually will follow, not always, there's not a formula for it, but often we see that it concludes a letter, it concludes the writing that the author has had. But here's what I love. I was thinking about, man, Peter started straight out with it. What was the point of Peter beginning with, with this doxology? Now, some of the time we will see in the doxology that the writer almost seems like they can't help themselves. They're speaking truth and they're speaking truth and suddenly they're just caught in this upward trajectory and the only fitting response is for them to burst out in this praise of glory. It's not unlike what we do here in our worship through song, where suddenly our hearts just bubble. You guys ever have that feeling where your hearts are just welling up and you just are like, I gotta give it all to you. I gotta sing it. I gotta pray it. I gotta shout it out. That's, that's a bit of what we see sometimes with doxologies. But Peter, and I'm, this is me hypothesizing, so you give me a little bit of creative license, although I don't think I have to dig too deep. I was thinking, man, it's interesting that Peter began It was intentional in a sense. Now, maybe in his meditation and contemplation and beginning to write his letter and and understanding the significance, he began this way and found himself caught up in, in the praise of the Lord. But I was thinking, man, just the strategy behind him beginning with this, because beginning with this hymn of praise, if you will, it draws the hearts of his readers and the listener upward towards Christ. And it brings our minds into this place of recognition of the elevated supremacy of the Christian life. Now, when I say the supremacy of the Christian life, I'm not saying because we are so great. I'm saying because of the significance of what Christ has done 
and where we are placed through our union with him, that elevates this to a place of significance. And so I believe that that perhaps could have been part of Peter's strategy to say, listen, I know what I need to say to this church or to these churches. I know what these Christians need to hear in this day, and it is a tough message. It's a difficult message, and I want to begin by just speaking truth so as to help them fix their minds rightly in Christ Jesus and to remember the the excellence of their life that is a life in Christ. And I also believe, too, that he was laying a foundation, a foundation of faith, which is going to be the basis for what he's going to go on to say. As I said a moment ago, it's going to be a difficult message at times. And I was thinking just about this kind of analogy when we use the word foundation, and we've talked about this before as well, but how it just takes us to like a building's foundation. And man, Peter's like, I got to take my time. I got to lay it straight. I got to lay it deep. I need to make it wide. It's got to be certain enough so that I can build upon it. Because if I, if I laid a thin or flimsy or non-structurally sound foundation, man, to, to build now the walls, if you will, or to build upon in what he's going to say would be so much more difficult than if he were to lay this re- rich and deep foundation. And so I believe that's what Peter is doing here. And so as, as Paul often did, Peter is coming straight out of the gate and he's making these statements that are statements of actuality. This is actually what is true. It might not experientially be true, but this is what is true. So he's making these statements that are certain. They're faith statements. And I said this last week. Some of First Peter has at times been seen as to be impractical theology. How could we possibly do this? But Peter is saying, listen, it doesn't matter whether you think you can do it or not. The reality is, is that this is what is true. Fix your mind there. Place your faith there. These are statements of faith. And so that's what Peter is doing. And he's saying, man, this is what the Christian life is about. This is what the the, the true Christian life looks like. Fix your minds on it. Find your anchoring within it. Draw your hope from all that it is. For this is our reality. It's ours in Christ Jesus. And so his opening doxology identifies two vitally important graces which are foundational to our standing. And so I want to take them today and I just want to highlight what they are and and discuss them a little bit. So the first is this. It's the grace of the Christian's new identity. And the second is the grace of the Christian's new inheritance. Both of these Again, I'm using the word grace when he says, this is the grace of God, stand firm in it. The first is the truth of the Christian's new identity, stand firm in it. And the second is the truth of the Christian's new inheritance. And I'll define more what I mean by new in a moment. Stand firm in it. How many of us can attest to the significance of matters pertaining to a person's identity? Think about this, when we, like if something tragic happens, where an individual causes something tragic to happen, the first thing they do is we want to dig in. What what was their upbringing like? What was their home life like? Who was this person that would actually cause them to act in such a way? Or on uh, on the opposite, the flip side of that would be if like someone's whatever really stellar and it's like, wow, 
Like, what, what were they like? How did they come to this point? What was their upbringing like? What's, what was the identity that was formed within them? There's such a significance within the subject of identity, and we find this, in fact, it's such a key, key strategic kind of gateway, if you will, when sharing and witnessing the gospel of Christ Jesus to an unbeliever, is to hear what are the things that have formed their identity? What has caused them to be who they are? And how does the gospel now speak to that error or you know, the, the wrong formation that fizzled out? My good point just fell flat on its face because I couldn't come up with the language. And so this is where Peter is going to begin. He's, he's calling us to stand firm. And so I want to just look at these two today, this truth of the Christian's new identity and the Christian's new inheritance. And so he begins in verse 3 again by saying, Blessed be the God and Father. Now listen for the language of identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a statement. What a statement. No wonder praise is the only plausible response to something like that. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is an an identity statement that is tied to what God has done through Jesus the Christ. So two important things from this first one this first grace of the new identity. It's firstly that we are born again. Something new has taken place to be born again. There's something new. And is as, as we find in studying when in, through, throughout the scriptures, oftentimes, like it, with the example of new covenant, that the introduction of something new isn't just something different, but it's something that is better. It's superior to the previous. It's meant to surpass and to replace its greatness with something now greater and better. So we have been born again. We have been made new. There's a new birth. And the second is that with this new birth, with this better birth, brings with it a blessing of assurance that which Peter calls a living hope. So within this first one, there's those two aspects, that we have been born again, and that with this being born again, there's something new that is ours, an assurance that is for us. And I'm not even getting to the new inheritance, so don't get that mixed up just yet in your minds. Use those really fancy new notebooks that we've got. Take some notes and make sure it's outlined clearly. And so I know that I said something to this effect a few weeks ago when we worshiped together and celebrated around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it bears me stating again, because we cannot hear this enough in our life, that in Christ's victory, God makes all things new, and that all things new begins with us. He begins with us, with his people, in making things new. Renewal begins within the heart of men and women in Christ. In Christ Jesus, I was thinking about Paul's statement in Corinthians that we are, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That is a now experience. That's a now message. That isn't just a one-day eternal hope a while, while it is. While it will find its fulfillment at the end of all times, it's a now statement to be experienced now 
that we are new now. And can I just say, again, in humility, that we are better in the sense, not better than, but better for. The quality of which we experience in the life that we live now is superior to and is better than the old that we had. And I mean, if we cannot agree on that statement, especially for those who have lived a period of their life outside of Christ, only to be called by his grace at at a latter point, can attest wholeheartedly. And even us, like myself, who was raised in, I can attest, just by seeing the world around, how much greater this life is in Christ Jesus. Blessed be our God and Father. In Christ, we're a new creation now. We're the old man, the man of dust. The old self is done away with now. Not someday, but now. The first Adam was replaced by the second. The life of Christ is experienced now. And what remains in what was once the man of dust, the old flesh, the slave to sin, as Paul would talk about in Romans, what remains now? is a slave to righteousness, is a slave to holiness, to pursuit of purity. And can I just say, I don't think it needs to be said, but just in case it does, this is a gender neutral term. So when I say the old man, the new man, this is men and women. So ladies, don't hashtag me. (laughs) I'm just gonna leave it at that. I don't think you will. I think you know what I mean. But it's important sometimes just to remind you, ladies. I'm a guy, so I use guy vernacular, but it's like, where are my girls at, ladies? The, the new ladies. <laughs> so ridiculous. One writer would say this, that our message, sorry, that our new birth is not the message of the resurrection. Our new birth is not the message of the resurrection. Our new birth is the fact of the resurrection. I like that distinction. It isn't something that we just talk about. It's something that we live, this new life that we've been given. Turn with me to Colossians, please, the book of Colossians. Chapter 2 page 984 in your Bible. Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The significance in this, brothers and sisters, is that when Jesus rose, we rose with Jesus Christ. Because by, by his, the, the very nature of our union with him, by faith now, we put our faith in the work that he accomplished. And what he accomplished is credited to us and to our life. 
and all of the blessings and the benefits as I will speak about here in just a moment. When Christ rose, we rose with him. So we have been born again. And then the second part of that first grace of the new identity, the first part again being that we have been born again and the second of what Peter says, that we are not just born again as beautiful and as remarkable and awe-inspiring as that is, but it isn't all that. And there was that, you guys remember that late night infomercial where they go, but wait, there's more. It's like Peter's saying, but wait a minute, there's more. It's two for the price of one because we've been born again into a living hope. Do you guys get the significance of this statement? Does it create joy in your life? Can you draw from it that grace of God in the moments when it's needed? To find assurance and hope in the reality that what has been given to you is greater and better than what we once had. And not only, but it is fixed and it's certain and it's secure. Because the father who gives new birth to his children through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, also through Jesus, brings us into a living faith. Into a faith that is alive. I'm reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. Having completed his work on the cross, he says that Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God. Thus giving us this picture that Christ remains permanently and perpetually as our new covenant maker and keeper. And I think I probably said this when we studied through Hebrews last year. Is Jesus literally seated at the right hand of God? That's not the language, or that's not the, the message that the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey. God is not, Jesus is not sitting somewhere right now. No, no, the idea was to create a picture in our hearts that what he has done is permanent and fixed and eternally true. And Jesus stands now eternally as our covenant maker and keeper. Thank you, Lord God. And not only that, but our faith is a living faith. Our hope is a living hope because what? Christ is living. He is alive. He is risen. Amen. And not simply is it just a hope in Christ, hoping that he's going to do what he says he'll do, but it's a, it's a hope that is Christ himself. Jesus Christ is our living hope. And we sing a song with that exact same verbiage. Jesus Christ, my living hope. I don't just hope in what he says he'll do. My hope is fixed firmly in the eternal nature of of Jesus as the risen Son of God. One commentator, his name is Edmund Clowney, poor guy. He says this, though, I know, in spite of his last name, this is a a brilliant, listen to what he says concerning Peter's hope. I love this. Peter writes a letter of hope. The hope that he proclaims is not what we call a fond hope. We cherish fond hopes because they're so fragile. We hope against hope because we do not really expect what we hope for. Think of that statement. We hope against all, hoping against all hope. Why do we even say that? It's because we don't expect what we actually hope for. But Peter writes of a sure hope, church, a hope that holds the future and the present because it's anchored in the past. His hope is sure because God has already accomplished his salvation 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was the Colossians 2 text. And now Peter writes, praise to God for that living hope. The resurrection did much more than restore his master to him. Think about that. When we think about the life of Peter, the denial of Jesus Christ, the restoration that Jesus shows us in the Gospels post his resurrection, where he goes to Peter and he restores Peter. Peter, do you love me? Of course I do, Peter says. The resurrection did more than just restore his master to him. The resurrection crowned the victory of Christ, his victory for Peter and for those whom he writes. The resurrection shows that God has made the crucified, both Lord and Christ, at the right hand of Father Jesus rules until the day that he will come to restore and renew all things. With the resurrection of Jesus and his entrance into glory, a new age has become, begun. With the resurrection of Jesus and his entrance into glory, a new age has begun. Peter now waits for the day when Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Peter's living hope is Jesus. This is the point for us, church. This is the point. Our hope, the hope that we hold, is anchored in the past, just as this man said. It's anchored in the past that Jesus rose. That's where our hope is fixed, something that has already occurred, and it remains in the present that Jesus lives today. And our hope is completed in what will be in the future that Jesus is coming. It is a certainty that we hold. This is what Peter blesses God for. This is what Peter is speaking to his brothers and sisters in Christ who face significant persecution, who face an onslaught of tyrannical ideology, who face all the suffering and the trials that Peter is going to begin to speak about and how those trials are going to be used for the benefit of the church. But the only way they become a benefit is if they understand this truth first. That there is hope, that there is certainty, that there is assurance in the heart of a Christian. This is the grace that is our new identity. May we stand firm in it. And then just quickly for the last, for a new inheritance, he says in verse four that we've been, prior to that again, we've been born again into a living hope to an inheritance that he says three things. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading, kept in heaven for you. And there's so much that can be delved into those three things in terms of just, again, Peter uses a lot of ripe Old Testament reference because he's tying in the New Testament Gentile believers with the people of God. He's showing the seamless transition between the God of the Old Covenant and the God of the New. And the people of the Old Covenant continuing as the people of the new. And so these three words have beautiful, beautiful picturing into Old Testament, but I'm not going to have time to express it and to teach it all this morning, but it's just to say this, that a new birth logically results in a new inheritance. Because our hope is certain and fixed in Christ, so too is our inheritance certain, right? If our hope is certain, 
our inheritance is certain as well. It's fixed through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And again, I spoke on this on Resurrection Sunday. The inheritance that Peter is speaking of is our future salvation. It's the glorification of our souls and the recreation of our bodies. But to understand and to live with the certainty of that happening, think of what that provides us in the here and the now. When Jesus says, I believe it's Matthew, when he says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who kills both the soul and the body. We're not afraid of what comes, and that's easier said than done. But listen, I'm just saying it to stir our hearts this morning. We must not be afraid at what comes at us, because as we will see, the sufferings, the trials, the adversity that God has orchestrated, which we've yet to encounter, are are ours for a purpose and for a reason, which only he in his infinite wisdom and sovereign knowledge could put together for our benefit and for the good of his church and for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of his name. So it's the future salvation that is our inheritance that Peter's speaking of. It's what we wait for, which we will most certainly receive. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verses 4, that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, Paul says this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There is no question in Paul's mind of what lies ahead. But importantly too, unlike the previous inheritance that we were set to receive, the the inheritance we didn't want, that which was awaiting for us because of our sinful nature, unlike that inheritance, this new inheritance is heavenly. And because it's heavenly, There is nothing on earth that can destroy it. It comes not from anything of this earth, but it comes from God himself. Eternal father, and therefore it's eternally true. And I think we need to sometimes change how we view this because this isn't an inheritance that's simply treasure or goods. And I I jokingly shared that story with you about the friend of mine who would pry at me all the time, be like, my mansion's bigger than your mansion. And he would talk about how what, you know, some kind thing he was doing was going to build up a bigger treasure than the one that I had in heaven. I, I joked about that, but it isn't, th- this inheritance isn't a, a goods basis. This isn't what the, the emphasis is. I'm not going to remind my friend of that. That's not what this is about. It's not earthly. It's not temporal. It's not a, it's something that's simply a treasure to be obtained or goods to be received. It's a right of ownership. An inheritance is a right of ownership that's eternal because we are children of the promise. We're not just obtainers of something new. We're beneficiaries because Christ has made us beneficiaries and rightful owners and heirs to the blessing that is his. Think about the significance of that as a beneficiary In the natural, as a beneficiary, you receive something whether you wanted it or not. But even beyond that, it's outside of anything that you would do. You're just given it. If you're set to inherit land or monies or goods or whatever it is, you're going to get it because it was the will of the individual to give it to you. That's the certainty of the Christian life's future inheritance. You're going to get it 
because it was God's will to give it to you. And because it was God's will, because it originates from heaven, there's nothing here that can remove that. And let's find certainty in that. Let's find certainty in the face of trial, in the difficult moments, and even just the God molding our hearts. Let's find certainty in these words. I need to wrap this up. Well, I want to take communion together. So just to remind us again, these graces that Peter begins with, and I'm going to speak next week on the following verses that I read, verses 5 through 12. But just to begin with this position, that it is the grace of God for us to stand in our new identity, and it's the grace of God for us to stand in the hope of our future inheritance. And may we find our firm footing to where we, like Luther, would be able to say, here I stand, I can do no other. There's nothing else I can do but to stand and to speak that this is what is true. So help us, God. Amen.